Today's reading from the New Testament, Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I am a young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, we need your help in so many ways. I'm so uh, grateful right now that you're the capital H helper. We need your help to know that you're here, that you're alive, that you're engaged with us, that you're forgiving, that you're gracious, that you're real, and that you do mean to transform us, to change us in this moment as we spend time with your living and active word. Help us now, for the sake of your Son. Amen. One of the most common prayers that you find all throughout the Bible, I mean, beginning with Israel and Egypt, moving on to the time of the judges, 
King David, whether he faces Saul, who's after his life, or whether he faces other enemies. So many psalms, so many proverbs have this theme as a prayer on the lips of Jesus in the mouth of the early church, and it is the prayer for justice. One of the most common prayers you find in the Bible often summed up as, how long, O Lord? That's not just a cry and expression of suffering. It is a cry for justice, and just as relevant today as it was then, as we were reminded yesterday, 10 innocent African Americans slaughtered because racial hate and injustice. Ryan... um, let us so well, reminding us to pray. Pray for those that right now are just devastated, that are reeling in pain. Pray for the community. Pray for the leaders in the community. Pray for Buffalo. Pray for the family and the people that know the shooter. But pray for justice. Pray that justice will be done. This is a prayer God has called us to pray, and it's something uniquely that it's given to the church to do. There's many ways in which we can partner with other faiths of the world in the action of justice, but there's this one unique thing that is given of the people of God to do, and that's pray for justice. That's not all there to do, but woe to us if we don't do that. Because it won't be the justice that God envisions And so, as we're moving through this series on uh, what it means to experience prayer, I want us to look at how do we grow as prayers, intercessors of justice. We need to grow in all sorts of prayer. We're doing all sorts of topics. But this is one, certainly, that we're called to grow in. How do we do that? And the book of Esther is really such a wonderful book to turn to. Maybe one of the best places in Scripture And this really uh, came to light to me several years ago when I had the privilege of sitting under uh, Brenda Salter McNeil. And this was before her book came out on Esther. And she unfolded Esther. And the way that she understood it contextually was just something I had never seen. Some of it is because my cultural story, ignorance, but fill in the blank. She, She was just able to really put this thing in the proper light as it should be, and that is really a book about how a young woman becomes a leader of prayer and justice. So it's a great place for us to go. One of the ways we see this is just Esther's story up to now. When we're starting in chapter 4, we can't do the whole thing, but Esther, like uh, a child born into slavery, is born into subjection. There's never been a day in her life where she has not known that. Her people have known it first through the Babylonians and now through the Persians. She's um, torn away. She's an orphan. She's torn away from the only father she's ever known, her older cousin Mordecai. She's drafted into a beauty contest of a tyrant. She's thrown into a harem. And this is uh, anything but a Cinderella story. Because this guy is not Prince Charming. Women are accessories to him. He sees them uh, for purpose of pleasure. 
You're here before me to bring me pleasure, sexual pleasure, visual pleasure, social capital. And so five years into palace life, in 30 days since he's wanted to see her face, you have to believe that Esther is feeling the burden. She's feeling the hollowness. She's feeling her need for justice, not to mention the daily pressure where she has to walk on eggs about her ethnicity, which her cousin has wisely told her you need to hide because of the anti-Semitism of that day. It was obviously enough so Haman, who just as mentioned, was able to capitalize on the social attitude toward the Jewish people and have an edict that would ensure their extinction. And it's in this context that Esther grows as an intercessor. And what I want to say is, you and I cannot grow as an intercessor of justice throughout defining moments. She had defining moments. There were three things. Probably more, but you know, we deal in threes around here. Defining moment with respect to identity. The second one with respect to goals or lifestyle, status, we might say. And the third one with respect to leadership. So let's look at those together. First of all, defining moment with respect to identity. Theologians will note that Esther is the only person in the story with two names. She has, other people did, but only hers are mentioned. Her Jewish name, which is Hadassah, and then her Persian name, which is Esther. And it's a hint from the writer to talk about the identity struggle that she's going to be experiencing. Am I Hadassah? Am I Esther? Who am I? I think it's very intriguing that the book was named Esther and not uh, after the Jewish name. And this practice of renaming uh, wasn't just happenstance, it was a technique by their captives. You see, unlike when Israel was in Egypt, and Egypt used a, a hard hand, brutal labor to oppress them, that Babylonians had a much more sophisticated way that they brought you into their world and assimilated you in. And it started with a new name. Now, not like the way American slave masters would name slaves after their last name to say, you're my property. Not that, but rather a name that actually may compliment you a little bit. Open your vision. Daniel, who came up in Babylon, was renamed Belshazzar after one of the names of their gods. Imagine that every day. God. God, God, I hear that all the time, even when people don't say it to me, right? Now, Esther's name, her Jewish name, was um, Myrtle Tree. It referred to a wild Myrtle Tree. Her Persian name was Star, named after a goddess. Hi, Myrtle Tree. High star. 
Which one would you want to hear? You know, it's been a long practice for a, a lot of time where sometimes famous folks will take on new names, right? Stefani, Joanne, Angelina, Germanata. Anybody know? Lady Gaga. You guys are impressive. Now, she got that name because the producer uh, heard something in her song that sounded like a Queen lyric, and she loved that and said, I love Gaga because I could reinvent myself. It sounds like just something that's crazy, and I wanted to reinvent myself. Or another one here, Sean Carter, Jay-Z, short for jazzy. He's a jazzy guy. And then... This may be a tough one. Saul Hudson, but I think Mike might know it. Saul Hudson, Guns N' Roses Slash. He got the nickname Slash because he was always in motion. Now, you know, these names aren't just names. The reason someone takes on a name is because it projects an identity, right? That's the point of it. And so, we find that the names that the Babylonians and the Persians would give, like Esther's, was to project an identity. But it wasn't just that. They also wanted to immerse you in the culture. And so what would happen is they'd give you a job in the system and even a way to advance in the system. Give you a little bit of taste of the good life. You got to sit at the table. You got to have some of the things that everybody else did. Our identities are easily shaped by the culture we're in. Some of that is inevitable, but modern people are the most oblivious. And I would say even modern Christians. And some of it has to do with just the individualism and dependence of Americans. You know, I'm free. It makes us even more vulnerable. Now, but it wasn't exclusive to our day. Jesus had a very provocative, hyperbolic way he addressed this with uh, the primary identity issue in his day, which was, who's my family? Who am I attached to? So what did he say? If anybody would come follow me, you must hate your father and mother. You must hate your brother and sister. You must hate your wife and your children. Does he mean literally? No, what he's saying is, he's pressing on that identity and saying, do you identify with me we're primarily that. Now, there's two ways, I, as I think about this in our day and age, that this idea of identity in the wrestling match comes through. One is the belief that's just been growing and growing that we invent and create identity, right? That we ourselves have the authority and the ability to make who we are. Different than the psalm that says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. You see, when you make yourself, you're not only misguided, but you lose a sense of belonging. We are his. It feels like it's the ultimate expression of freedom, isn't it? I mean, it is. The ultimate expression of freedom is to say, I will invent myself. I don't think we've begun to see the cost of that in our culture. But one of them is a loss of belonging. But a second way is when sub-identities overtake your primary identity in God, that idea of being an image bearer, having come from creator, sustainer, redeemer. 
and this isn't new to our age. It obviously played into the massacre yesterday. A young man's identity, his white identity, became his God, so much so that he would pour out his wrath on anybody that seemed to threaten it. And for you and I, the sub-identity might not be that. It might be sort of where you come from. I mean, I, in my family, in the Hoburg family, you know, maybe it's, you know, this is what it means to be a Hoburg. This is what it means to be a Park. In my family, it was clear what it was, because when I became a Christian, my dad listened. He was a man of few words. He listened to me, and then he said, well, son, as long as it's not important than family. In the Hoburg household, family is the primary identity. For some of us, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, the funny ways we see it, right, are our sports teams. I mean, it's embarrassing. I'm watching the Penguins lose right now, okay? That's hockey, by the way. And, uh, you know, I was so easily set up the other night. Now, it, it, they've been up three to one in the playoffs. Now it's three to three. Game seven's tonight. I gotta go, actually. No. <laughs> but you know, there I am, and you know, I was so easily set up by the forces of evil. It's on me. I'm just such an easy target. Easy target. I'm watching this happen, and then you know, my puppy, he decides, attention. I need attention. I need attention. And the next thing I know, I'm yelling at Meg. Why? Because my identity is in the victory of this team, right? I mean, for some of us, maybe, you know, especially with Washington, for some of you, and this isn't a shot, it's just self-awareness, the family you grew up in, whether it's progressive politics or conservative, I mean, it was like since you grew up, that was part of family life, right? Or it might be denomination. One of the reasons the PCA did not speak about its roots and racism prejudice was because the denomination name. This is the PCA. That's this denomination, by the way. And so one of the ways that you find out uh, whether, and this is all of us, there's nobody, nobody not needing to grow, right? One of the ways we find out primarily is do you pray regularly for justice? When I say this, I say it because our Savior did all the time, but more so, it just runs so much throughout the book. And if I don't, a place to start is your identity. Or do you find you just pray for one or two areas of justice and not the wide biblical menu portfolio? The place to start is, where is my identity playing into that? When Esther recovers and reclaims her identity, she begins to pray for justice. Beautiful example of this we have is the Apostle Paul who was Saul, right? Paul, his entire identity was his race and ethnicity. You can read about that. But then Jesus knocks him off of that idol, literally. He comes to know the risen Christ. He comes to know God, his maker, his sustainer, his father, his lover, his friend, his savior, his propitiation, his atonement. He meets this one and all, this everyone who is everything to you and me. He meets him, and then he says this, though I'm free from all, 
I will be a servant of all. To reach the Gentiles, I'll become like a Gentile. I'll become a different ethnicity. To reach the Jews, I'll become like a Jew. What's interesting about that, right? He's Jewish. This is what he's saying. I had to back out of my identity, of my primate, that sub-identity. I had to get out of it. I had to get into Christ. I had to be lifted up to get back into it properly. And that's what happens with us in the gospel. You come to know God through Jesus Christ. He's going to have to do that thing where you and I are backing out of that primary identity so he can put us back in. Paul would later say, yeah, I have a burden for my countrymen. He still has countrymen. It's just different then. As you and I rethink what it means to be black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Indian, we should find that it changes our prayers of justice. How can it not? Right? I mean, you spend, as we spend time with people that aren't like us and don't have our story, we begin to take on their burdens. We begin to see their lives less suspicious. So, defining identity. Let's do defining goal. Now, the moment Esther enters that harem, her life gets both better and worse at the same time. Now, in chapter 1, this is sort of the setting she goes into. Uh, it's talking about a, a seven-day party that this king is throwing in the palace, actually in the garden. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen. Marble pillars, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement with precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Royal wine was lavished according to the edict, do as you desire. It sounded like I was reading from Domino or one of, right, one of these magazines. Uh, is that still? Yes. Wife gives the... Esther also, we find, gets cosmetics and choice portions of food. You know, I live with an interior designer, and there's lots of these magazines of beautiful places. Beautiful homes, Right? And, uh, I, you know, I've been pulled into that beauty, I especially though I still am a pretty predictable guy. I look at the patio, you know. I'm just sort of like, man, look at that. And this guy's got that sort of like brick barbecue oven thing, you know, not just like a little rusty grill, right? He's got the big thing there, and then, you know, the furniture, and then he's got the mounted TV that doesn't get wet outside because it's covered, and I mean, just all that stuff, you know, I... I start looking at, do you ever find yourself looking at those, you know, looking at them, and, and then you begin to strategize. How can I up it a little bit? My goal, how can I, I need to get a little bit more, a little bit higher, then I'll be happier. Well, Esther had been away from where she grew up for five years living in that setting. And plus, she's the queen. That means that stuff's in her closet. That stuff is at her disposal. Her days are constantly in that Disney world. Her life got better. And also, Esther was given the God-given ability to garner favor. She possesses the ability to impress. She has pretty strong people skills. You've got to believe she was tempted... Sometimes they use that, right? I mean, all of us would. Brenda Salter McNeil says that Esther 
have been assimilated to a degree into that life. That's why she's hesitant in part. To put it another way, she no longer sees beyond the palace gates. But it doesn't have to be palace gates, right? Those gates can be lots of different things for you and I. Can we see beyond them, right? Maybe it's the bars and the gates of my, just my standard of living and what I have and what I want. Maybe it's my ideology. And I, you know, I can't really see beyond that into different issues of what's going on out there. Maybe it's my safety and what I want for my family. Maybe it's just this idea of sort of quick fixes. You know, I've noticed, listen, I don't want to say that there aren't debates about what justice looks like and how it works out. But whatever that discussion is, it should not make us less aware of justice. It should not make us pray less about justice. It should not make us do less justice, right? Because you, you don't see that in the scripture. Mind formed by God, you find a robust theology. And so Esther, Esther's got a little bit of the quick fix in her. She hears that Mordecai's crying outside sackcloth and ashes, which was not permitted at the gate. Why? Well, it's the same reason, you know, when sometimes a big event happens in a city and they you know, let's get the tents and the people off the street. The king doesn't want to see that stuff. He wants to be able to look around and say, I, I'm, this kingdom's a good place. Mordecai doesn't give in. She sends some clothes and rejects it. In a sense, she's saying, would you stop crying out for justice? You're making me vulnerable. You're threatening where I'm at. But it's in her hesitancy to speak, there is some degree that Esther has become comfortable. Her goal has been to be at this place, not unlike you and me. I mean, this is one of the great things you and I need to wrestle with. Uh, many of us here, not all of us, but many of us being middle class to upper class to educated professional people. It's possible I have found living in two cities for over 30 years, it's possible to live around needs, but just live around needs, right? I mean, really, my desire, whether or not I engage and pray, is just kind of where my heart is that day. So don't get me wrong, I don't think geography just does it, but cities do give you the, at least the ability to look around and go, all is not well. <laughs> all is not well. And I have to wrestle with that. She doesn't want to see the world that Mordecai sees, and we don't want to see the world that Jesus sees. When Jesus came, his first sermon said, uh, I will be setting captives free and prisoners free. And I think in our minds we might think, well, th there was more of that in Jesus' day. There was more of that, so that's why he saw more of that. But it's clear from the religious leaders, they were blind to it. You see, whether or not we see justice doesn't have to do with, is there more or less? It's there. Issues of injustice, right? 
The difference was the lens. Jesus is in his palace. God looks upon the world through his scope of justice and says to the second person, the son, will you go? Will you go? If you want to know what the God of the Bible thinks about justice, where else do you hear the story of God entering into it? Flesh and blood, daily life, 33 years, and who does he spend his time with? He tells a parable about it, right? The widow. As he's teaching about prayer, the widow who needs justice. Mordecai has to give Esther some strong medicine. He basically says, one, you're not going to escape. Your life may be in jeopardy, but your doom is certain if you don't say anything. Second of all, deliverance will come. God will just bring it through someone else. Oh, Lord, let, let that not be said of me, of any of us. Justice will come. It will come. But to my shame, it wasn't through me. Or if she's willing, if she's willing to look beyond the gates, I will lead her. God will lead you. And there's a risk involved. The queen before her was banished because she would no longer be the play toy of the king. Vashti's actually the first one that stands up for justice in the kingdom. And listen to the way that Esther responds. After she's convicted with Mordecai, after she sees it and she has her turning point, she doesn't say, okay, God, this is the deal. I'm going to stick my neck out and you better come through because I'm kind of inching my way into this. She says, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. She's operating from something new now, right? It's not save my life, protect my life. I'll do the justice thing as long, and this is, oh, this, I see this in myself all the time. Do you see it in you? I, I'll, I, yeah, I'm going to care about justice, but you see, this is my house, God, and this is my circle, and these are my people. And it's only natural, right? I'm not saying people that suffer injustice don't care about their families. They do, but am I willing to say, if it all goes up in smoke, so be it. I will follow you wherever you lead. I read this quote, and, and this is mostly, if you're someone looking into the Christian faith, it's assuming, it's speaking to Christians, you can still probably get something from it. And then we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. The last point's just going to be a quick one. Perhaps, like Esther, you have been brought to this moment in your life by circumstances over which you had no control combined with flawed decisions you made along the way. Perhaps instead of living for God, you have so concealed your faith that no one would even identify you as a Christian. Then suddenly you find yourself facing calamity, either in the circumstances of your life, with others, or just within your own inner emotional world. Regardless of the straits you find yourself in, turn to the Lord. Rend your heart, not your garment. Fast, weep, and mourn, and return to the Lord your God. His purposes are greater than yours, and who knows, perhaps you have come to your present situation for such a time as this. It's a word of encouragement for all of us. But lastly, it's not just defining goals and status. It's defining leadership. There's two ways 
that you see Esther's leadership shine. The moment she assumes leadership, she's the one that begins, uh, begins to give orders. At that point, Mordecai recedes, and Esther is the one that's calling the shots. She now has, she now has a moral authority to lead. We need that. But the thing that we should really see is she leads in prayer. She leads with prayer. Now, there's lots of great leadership books. And I read as many as I can because I need help. But you know what a mark of a Christian leader is they lead with prayer. Why? Because they know ultimately they are not fighting against flesh and blood. They're fighting against a spiritual battle. When I heard the news of Buffalo, like I've heard the news before, you know, I, I was just like, what do you do? Weak. Do you feel weak? World, do you feel weak? Christians, do you feel weak? Washington, do you feel weak? That's a good thing. Because it means we might pray. This is way above our pay grade. And the truth is, until Jesus Christ, the King of Justice, come back, comes back as he came the first time, we're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with heartbreak and injustice and sin of all kind. But God has put you, his people, in the world, filled with Jesus and his Holy Spirit for the purpose of being a witness and being the point of the spear when it comes to justice. Jesus was willing to lay down his life, just like Esther, that she could, he could be an intercessor for you and I, just like he is right now. And so, praying isn't all we do, but man, if we think that we can sort of put on the Washington, D.C. fix-it cap, You'll burn out, you'll patronize people, we won't get anything done. But with prayer, watch out. See what happens. Look at IJM, International Justice Mission. We could go list out, look at World Vision, look at different uh, organizations that are committed to, God will work. Uh, I got a note this week from um, a man named Tom Terrence, and I've, I've uh, mentioned him before. And Tom was the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, for years and years. Godly guy. When I first showed up here, he would mentor pastors. He just pursued me. And um, he also has a crazy testimony. You can read it. He was in the KKK, almost got killed became a Christian, speaks into issues like this, justice. But he, he gave me a little note, and some of you might recall me saying this once, but I was just in town, and he probably thought, here comes another one. Another church planner, right? And he just said, uh, 
Glenn, I'm so glad you're here. It's been great to get to, get to know you. Uh, blessings upon your ministry, blah, blah, blah. Something about, I hope you'll be committed with prayer and that it ended, he said, because without that, you don't stand a chance. I was like, wow, that's pretty bold. He was right. So, let's pray. God, we thank you. We stand a big chance. We have the ears of heaven, the heart of heaven. Lord, make us more like Christ. Help us with our prayers of justice. Help them to grow in wisdom and regularity. More so do things. Deliver the, the oppressed. Deliver the captives. Deliver the prisoners. Put to death the racism. 